Father God, thank you that we can gather this morning and we can worship you. This is that rhythm, Lord, that you put into creation itself. You said there's to be a time each week where we Sabbath together. And a big part, a huge part, the central part of the Sabbath is really taking time to pause, to think, to reflect, to pray, to gather with others and to worship you. Father, we recognize it's like a reset in our week. It's, it's to reorient our thinking and focus us on the things that matter most, and that is you. So be our teacher this morning. Challenge us. Encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, life is unfair. Would you agree? When I was 12 years old, uh, my father passed away one night and um, from massive heart failure. That was the first time I remember feeling uncertain about the future as a 12-year-old kid. How would my mom cope? That was a big question. How would our family survive? That was a question. How could we afford to stay in the state, the community, and the house that we lived in? And as it turned out, we couldn't. We had to sell the house. We had to move back to Indiana, which was one state away to be near relatives. Uh, Mom had to get a job. We had to attend new schools and we had to make new friends. We had to start all over and we had to do all of that without a dad or my mother's case, without a husband. And I remember feeling, this is not fair. Other kids had moms and dads, and now we didn't. One author writes these words, when you experience bereavement, at a young age, you suddenly realize that life is unjust and unfair, that bad things will happen, and you just have to accept it. But that's really the problem right there, figuring out how to accept it. Uh, How are you doing at accepting coronavirus? goes up, goes down, goes back up. How are you doing with that one? How do you accept one candidate suing instead of conceding and another one adding new votes seemingly every day? How do you accept life's terrible blows or life's irreplaceable losses or life's insurmountable hardships? All things, quite honestly, we can't fix. Possible for us to change. A child grows up in an abusive home. A wife is battered by her husband. A spouse is deserted or cheated on. You live in the home of an alcoholic. You struggle with a disability that pays, causes you to pay a price every day. You feel the sting of prejudice or racism or discrimination, and quite honestly, none of that is fair. And if we could each tell our own stories, part of our stories would be about the unfairness of life. Some of us, by God's grace, have been able to see a a whole lot of good come out of the bad. Many years ago, uh, we had an 18-year-old daughter get pregnant when she was a senior in high school. At the time, that was very bad. It seemed like so many dreams were going to end because of this. But over the years, we got to love on a wonderful granddaughter and we got to see the faith of our daughter grow and we got to see our faith grow 
And we got to see this church love on us in ways that still to this day minister to us and encourage us and buoy us when we need buoying. And so there was light at the end of a dark tunnel. But for many, for some of us maybe here this morning, for some watching um, out there in TV land, you're still in a tunnel. So just raising a subject like this is kind of painful, kind of tender. Well, this morning I bring this up because we're going to look at the life of Joseph. He's Jacob's youngest son. Uh, He's an intriguing young man, a man who knew all about life's unfairness. And what's intriguing to me is the manner in which Joseph handled life's unfairness. Of course, on the one hand, he had little choice. He just had to accept what had come his way. But on the other hand, we're going to see that his perspective in the midst of all of his circumstances made a huge difference. His understanding of who God is changed how he viewed his circumstances. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Joseph's life together. And it's my hope that we'll be instructed and convicted and encouraged and inspired so that some of what Joseph discovered about God, we can discover as well. So are you with me in this? Let's dive right in. Genesis chapter 37, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. This is what we read. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring a flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, We were binding sheaves. This is, of course, sheaves of grain, probably wheat, something like that. We were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers. And he said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Wow. (laughs) These verses describe for us a very, very, very bad family situation. It's a large family marked by jealousy, marked by strife, marked by hatred. And the focal point of much of that strife, much of that jealousy, much of that hatred is, of course, Joseph. There are reasons for this. 
Back in verse 3, it says, Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Joseph was daddy's favorite, you understand. Uh, Jacob had 11 sons at this time, and yet he made no apology whatsoever about the fact or around the issue that he loved Joseph the most, the best. He even made a, a special coat or robe for his son Joseph, Joseph's coat of many colors, as we often call it. Literally, it's a coat of long sleeves is what it says, or a coat of great decoration or an ornamented coat. And this kind of coat, understand, is the kind of coat that princes wore or a firstborn son of the family would wear. It's a very special coat. This coat was most likely Jacob's way of saying, Joseph will be my heir. Even though he's the youngest son, he's number 11, he is going to be my heir. And you can imagine how Joseph's brothers responded to that coat. Every time they saw Joseph in the coat, they would be thinking, well, there goes daddy's boy. (laughs) There goes dad's favorite. There's the one dad loves more than me. And that coat just kindled their jealousy and fueled their hatred. And we need to understand something. This, of course, isn't all Joseph's fault. Joseph is only 17 years old. As far as we know, he's done nothing to butter up his father. Uh, Jacob just favored Joseph for one reason, because he was the son of his old age. He was daddy's little boy, literally. And then secondly, Joseph was the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. He had four, you remember. Jacob's other wives were badly, badly jealous of Rachel. And so as Joseph grows up, he gets to be on the receiving end of two generations of jealousy. The three wives are jealous of Rachel. And these wives are the mothers of the other 10 brothers, you understand, all older than Joseph. So question, do you think these wives passed on any of their jealousy and their hurt to their sons? Yeah, absolutely they did. Uh, Years of seething hatred and bitterness is bound up in this family. So that by the time Joseph gets his coat of many colors, his brothers are furious at the inequality and unfairness of their father's affections. But there's little they can do about it. Life is so unfair. Now, a complicating factor in all this mess we see in verse 2. It says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Commentators debate about this a little bit. Uh, Was Joseph actually just lying and bringing a bad report to his father? Or was Joseph just telling on them, telling the truth about their bad behavior? And you kind of wonder what exactly is going on here. And I think probably it's the latter. Because as the story continues to unfold and as we get to know uh, Joseph a little bit better, we find out he's a very trustworthy person. Uh, he's not really a liar. He doesn't uh, indicate such. And, and uh, he is also a very hard worker. That too comes out later on in his story. So what appears to be happening here is Joseph, who's a hard worker, Joseph, who's a truth teller, lets his dad know that his brothers do neither. Uh, they, they don't do their jobs well. They don't work hard and they lie about it. So as you can imagine, they didn't like being told on. 
especially by Joseph. And so they start thinking, if we get rid of this guy, we look a lot better with our father. We'll have a better relationship with dad. And if all of this isn't enough for the family to process, there arises this other problem, this problem of Joseph's dreams. He has two of them. The first one, the sheaves of grain, right? His stands up, the others bow down to him. And then the sun, the moon, the 11 stars, all bowing down to Joseph. And the punchline of both of these dreams is that the day will come when Joseph's entire family will bow down to him. And we don't know for sure, but it seems like maybe Joseph enjoyed sharing his dreams with the family. We get that impression. And as you can well imagine, that went over like gangbusters, right? And the fact is, Joseph is either at best being naive and very insensitive, or at worst, he's just being arrogant. Just plain arrogant. And somebody should have told him better not to mention the dreams, at least not now, Joseph. But it was too late. His brothers were fed up. His brothers hated him. His brothers had had enough. So the next time they're off pasturing their their father's herds and Joseph comes looking for them to check up on them. This is what we read. It says they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. They've given him a nickname now. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will happen become of his dreams. Now, Reuben, the older brother, actually convinces his other brothers not to kill him. And instead, they sell their their brother to slave traders for 20 shekels. And before Joseph knows it, he's on a camel headed to Egypt. And verse 36 says, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh in the captain of the guards. And so Joseph is in senior high. He's 17 years old and he is now in a strange land with a strange language and a strange culture and strange surroundings and he's a slave. How do you think Joseph feels? You know, what's interesting, we're not really told. We're not, we're we're not given a whole lot of information around this, but I'm guessing because Joseph is a human being like me, (laughs) like you, I'm guessing he's lonely I am guessing he's angry. I am guessing he's confused and he's feeling that life is very, very, very unfair. And my guess is Joseph for some time found himself thinking, this can't be happening to me. I can't believe what my brothers have done. This has got to be a bad dream. Remember, up to this time, Joseph has been the favored son. He's the many-colored coat guy, right? He's the big dreamer. But all of that now is in the past. That's a distant memory. And life is full of unexpected surprises. One of them, we find Joseph is still in, in Potiphar's home. This is chapter 39. And Joseph is actually prospering about as much as a slave can prosper. This is what we read. It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, uh, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. 
and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, we don't know how long Joseph at this point has been in Egypt, but it's certainly been years, not months. And during that time, things have really gone well for Joseph, considering, right? First and foremost, he's found favor with his God, which has caused him to find favor with his master. And he has been promoted, apparently time after time after time, uh, to the point where he is now second only to his master in managing this large estate and managing the assets of this very wealthy official there in Egypt. Now, on top of all of this, in verse 6, it says, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So it makes you kind of want to go, wow. It makes you want to sing that, that old uh, song, uh, Summertime. It's summertime and the living is easy. The fish are jumping and the cotton is high and your daddy's rich and your mom is good looking. I mean, everything is going about as good as it can go for Joseph, given his circumstances. But then we read, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master, uh, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Is that what it says? No. It says, and sin against God. And right here, we began to see very clear evidence of some growth in Joseph. Growth in character, growth in understanding, maturity is happening. By now, we can safely assume that Joseph is in his early 20s at least, this woman comes to him for sexual pleasure and you wonder how is Joseph going to handle this? How, how will he view his circumstances? Well, Joseph says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against not Potiphar, but God. And the point is, and this is important. The point is Joseph sees himself and his circumstances entirely as if laid out before God. Entirely as if his circumstances are things that God is involved in. And therefore, he doesn't want to sin against his God. You see, his promotions, his prosperity, his situation, they are all because of God, not Potiphar, God. And so he wants to honor and he wants to obey God. Even though his circumstances have much of the time been very difficult, very strange, he's had to adapt in the midst of all of that. He's done all of that with God and with God's enabling him to succeed. 
That's how he sees himself. That's how he sees his circumstances. And that gives him exactly what he needs to be able to say no to this temptation. How easy it would have been for Joseph to rationalize this. You know what? I do deserve some pleasure, dadgummit. I've been through a lot lately. Life has treated me unfairly. I don't deserve this whole slavery thing. So yeah, let's have sex. Who cares what God says? But that's not how Joseph sees his circumstances. Nor is that how Joseph sees his God. You see, Joseph is walking with God. And so Joseph is able to say no. No. And so we think, wow, okay, glad that's over, right? Well, not so fast. Verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. So Potiphar's wife persisted. How long? We don't know. But day after day. And Joseph persisted as well. Doing what? Well, doing what he always did. Get up in the morning and I am going to follow God. Get up in the morning and I am going to obey God. Get up in the morning and I am trusting God. God, help me do what I'm called to do. Help me manage this estate and do it for your glory, God. Verse 11. One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Little ethnic prejudice going on here. How do you think the other servants felt having Joseph promoted over them? This Hebrew. You see what she's playing into here. Do you think the other servants knew that she was slightly promiscuous? <laughs> oh, yeah. You bet they knew that. You know, I bet she had a reputation. I mean, we're not told that, but I'm just, I'm reading between the lines. So it's like these, these servants are, you know, playing along with this because it advances their cause, their purpose. Get rid of Joseph. That's what I think is going on, going on here. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house and all the servants are chuckling. Oh yeah, I bet. And I read this and I just want to say, okay, God, this woman needs to be dealt with. She is unfaithful, untruthful, unkind. So give her what's coming to her, God. And oh yeah, while you're at it, since Joseph has been obedient and loyal and honest, why don't you throw him a blessing? And so we read, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. You got to be kidding. That's not fair. That's not right. That stinks. Makes you want to scream. What's going on here? God, why aren't you working? God, why are you letting this happen? 
God, where are you in the midst of this mess? And verse 21 tells us, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Circle that, underline that one. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Interesting. So apparently God can be with you in the midst of treachery and betrayal. In the midst of slavery and false accusation in the midst of prison, in the midst of any kind of mess you can name. And in it, when we walk with God and process our circumstances with trust, with faith, with obedience, God will always bless us. Am I right? Is that what we're learning? No, we're learning exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. You can be trusting and obeying God and experience all kinds of unfairness in life, all kinds of injustice, all kinds of heartache, all kinds of disappointment. But what we are learning is that God will bless you. He will show you steadfast love right smack dab in the middle of it. God will sustain you through it. And we'll learn later, God can even make good come out of it, even though what's happening is not good. You see, that's Joseph's story. Chapter 40, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. These are high-ranking officials. You've heard this before. These are not, you know, kitchen workers. These are people that spent time every day right there with Pharaoh. The cupbearer probably drank and tested his food to make sure it wasn't poisoned, gave him advice, you know, advised strategy and so on. Same with the baker. These are high-ranking officials. And it says, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. We don't know why, but he suspects them of something. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. What a coincidence. And he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. We don't know how long, but they were there for a while. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with his own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. That's an interesting little tidbit right there. (laughs) You can just read right past that and maybe not pick up on this. But, you know, Joseph notices how these men feel. And quite frankly, that's a new one for Joseph. You remember years earlier, Joseph wasn't uh, too aware of how others felt about his many-colored coat or the dreams that he was having and and sharing. But he notices now these men, their circumstances, their condition, their fright, their concern. And so he asks Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody uh, in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? 
He's giving glory to God. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes and Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and I pressed them into the Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in the Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And then he makes a personal plea. He says, only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house, this prison for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. That's a slightly different interpretation. And hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Ouch. That's exactly what happens. The Pharaoh's cupbearer is restored. The chief baker is beheaded and hanged. And then we read, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Oh gosh, are you kidding me? That is not fair. Joseph actually spends two more years in prison. Not days, not months, years. And by the time Joseph finally gets out, he's somewhere at least in his late 20s. And this stuff has gone on now for over 10 years. In his late teens, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. In his early 20s, he's betrayed by a woman. In his late 20s, he's forgotten by someone he helped. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. By anyone's estimate, his life has not been fair. So it wouldn't surprise us to find Joseph bitter, distrusting, angry, resentful, fed up with people, fed up with his family, and why not fed up with God? But Joseph is none of these. Each time he's found himself in trouble, he's responded with faith and he's responded with obedience. And remember, Joseph doesn't know how his story is going to end. And neither do we. Nobody ever knows how their story is going to end. And so a fair question is, how has Joseph managed to respond this way to his life's awful circumstances? How? Well, a couple of observations, and then we'll be done. Amen? (laughs) Joseph came to realize that unfair circumstances are just a part of life. That was almost becoming the norm for him. I know that's obvious, But sometimes you just need to state the obvious. It's 
it escapes us. In a sin-saturated world, a world where we contribute ourselves to those sins, life is very often just plain unfair and cruel. And we don't like that. <coughs> Excuse me. We want fairness, at least when it comes to us getting fairness. And we say to God sometimes with, you know, fists clenched, why God, why me, why this, why now? And sometimes we ask those questions for days or weeks or months, sometimes even for years. And you know what? Sometimes the only answer that God gives us is that life in a sin-saturated world is unfair. And that's really the only answer that Joseph has at this point. Life is just unfair. Bad stuff happens. You know, all you have to do is open the pages of your Bible and begin reading. And you discover that some of the most God-trusting, faith-filled men and women live in the midst of the most unfair and difficult circumstances. Elijah spent a good deal of time by a dried-up brook. Job lost everything for reasons he never understood. Moses fled for his life for saving someone else's life. Jeremiah is rejected by the leaders and the people just for speaking God's truth, God's word to them. Mary suffered humiliation without doubt because she was a virgin with child. Paul suffered innumerable hardships just for preaching the gospel and planting churches all around the Mediterranean. Stephen is stoned and killed because of his witness for Jesus, for, and of course, there's Jesus himself. Jesus suffered. Jesus was humiliated. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was punished for sin, died on a cross because of you. And because of me. Jesus is without doubt the, the saddest, the most extreme example of life's unfairness and injustice and cruelty. When the only man who was ever really innocent died for those who were guilty, that's Jesus. God himself has been deeply affected by the unfairness of a sin-filled world. It cost him his son. Now, Jesus always knew when he was walking on this planet, Jesus always knew that his suffering, his humiliation was purposeful. He always knew that. In fact, he said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. <clears throat> Jesus' suffering was redemptive. It was purposeful. Now, Truth is, our suffering is not redemptive. My suffering isn't going to redeem you of anything. In fact, the truth is, a good bit, a large percentage of my suffering is of my own making. Is that you as well? If we're honest, we have to say, yeah. Yeah, a series of bad decisions that I've made, not listening to God, not trusting in God. But is everything that's bad in my life because of something I did or choices I made? Well, if we're being honest, we'd have to say no. No, not everything. Life can be unfair even when you're doing the right thing. But here's the thing. 
when you put your faith in Jesus and when you follow Jesus, when you trust God, obey God and bad stuff comes your way, here's something you can always know. And that is this, your suffering, your circumstances, your difficulty, your trial is purposeful. It is always purposeful. God is using it regardless whether we know or understand what he's up to. I think Joseph came to a point somewhere in his ordeal where he realized that it accomplished nothing to sit in a corner angrily asking, why, why this, why me, why God? And so he moved on to ask in humility, it's the only way to ask this, what next, God? What next? What now? How, how do I honor you in these circumstances? Okay, okay, I, I'm a slave. How do I honor you? Okay, I've been falsely accused. I'm in prison. How do I honor you? He figured out that life wasn't about where he was going or where he was. It was about who he was following. And so he followed the heavenly father. And friends, I would just say to you, if you're stuck in the whys, why, 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 you need to move on to the what. What now? What next, God? How do I honor you in this? And we need to grow the conviction that God is with us and there is purpose in our circumstances, no matter how difficult, no matter even if we are the cause. That's the amazing thing. Do you know how many messes I've made that God walked through those messes with me and I learned something through it? Four, there's been four of them. No, I'm kidding. There's been an infinite number. I mean, God is so incredibly gracious. I make the mess. I deserve what I get. But God is right there in the middle of that teaching me. And then, oh yeah, all that other stuff that I didn't cause. There can even be blessing in that too. Not saying it feels like a blessing. I'm just saying we need to know that there is purpose. If we're doing life with God, there's always purpose. Now, know too that the day is coming when fairness will be meted out. It's called Judgment Day. We spent a whole long time studying a book all about Judgment Day. It's called the book of Revelation. Thank God that that day is coming. And thank God that because of Jesus, we will not get what we deserve on that day. Amen. Amen. One more observation, just quickly here. And that is that God is near to those who draw near to him in the midst of their mistreatment. How many times have we read in Joseph's story this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. I don't know if you underline those or mark those. Five times, five times the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph in his times of trouble would cling to the Lord, would walk with God, would trust God to care for him, would choose to obey God, follow God. Interestingly enough, so many of us do exactly the opposite when tough times come our way. We, we feel like we're entitled to only good times, I guess. We face a trial of some sort, work becomes unbearable, a relationship goes bad, school overwhelms us, a son, a daughter goes on tilt, the future looks frightening, and we get angry and we get frustrated with God. And we walk away from the only sure source of strength and help that is out there, and that is God. I love the Psalms. 33 times the Psalms mention trouble. 
The psalmist says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And I'm sure Joseph prayed a prayer like that. We all have. When you're in trouble, sometimes it feels like God is nowhere to be found. But the psalmist also says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Friends, that's what Joseph learned in his times of trouble, that God was with him and that God was for him and that God cared for him. And that's the big point. That's the conclusion. That's the point of this message. So Joseph trusted that somehow and in some way God would use his circumstances, even when they went from bad to worse. God would use his circumstances for good, for God's purpose, for God's glory. And that right there is what God wants you and me to learn as well. And he's going to work with us our whole life long until we finally get that lesson learned. When life is unfair, God is still with you. When life is unfair, God still cares. When life is unfair, God will make your troubles useful. His steadfast love will be with you. When life is unfair, God is growing you up. When life is unfair, God is still accomplishing his purpose. Amen. Pray with me. Father, This part of the life of Joseph is frankly troubling and difficult to read because it's one mess after another. Even when Joseph is trusting in and walking with you and there's that part of us that feels like, well, Joseph should get better than that. That's what we think about ourselves, God. My life should be different. It should be better. There should be none of these difficulties that we fail to understand the depth of how you work in us and through us in a fallen, sinful, sin-saturated world. God, would you teach us? Would you grow us up? Would you help us to see that Jesus is the greatest example there is of how you love us and care for us and meet us in the messes that we're in? Jesus himself said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God, these are lessons we want to learn. These are lessons we need to learn. Would you increase our faith? Would you give us the ability to say no to those things that would destroy us or destroy others? Would you help us to become more like your son, Jesus himself? For it's in his name we pray. Amen.